Hello. 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 And welcome to Pioneers Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. Hi, I'm Bob Toost, co-founder of Practical Governance. Hi, I'm Matt Potts. I'm the founder of Camarados. Welcome to the Feelings Mutual, a podcast series where Maff and I are joined by guests from all backgrounds to discuss the concept of mutual aid and the proposition that it lies at the very heart of systems change and social justice. Mutual aid means that we look out for each other. You support me and I support you. In the wake of COVID-19, thousands of new groups have been set up on these principles, but have we lost the mutual in mutual aid along the way? Uh, we're over the moon that everyone's talking about mutual aid, but unfortunately, some of it is bollocks. We hope this series will have open and honest discussions from all perspectives around the theme of mutual aid. Let's go for it. So this is the third in the Feelings Mutual uh, podcast. It came just after the publication of a report from Danny Kruger, MP to the Prime Minister, around community involvement and engagement and empowerment, um, which coloured quite a lot of the conversation. But uh, this was a really good one, wasn't it, Matt? Oh, yeah, it was great. Full of passion. Really made my brain hurt. i got to just say that now. So, um, you know, hang on in there when you're listening to it. Uh, it's only natural we got into a bit of politics. I think like the Kruger report, there were bits that make you go, yeah, and the bits that make you go, oh, no, um, and which is kind of what this is all about, right? We're, we're making this up as we go along, and I invite everyone who's listening to, to join in in that spirit. Absolutely. These conversations keep building one week to the next or one month to the next, and it was great to have Amir and Tom share their ideas, and we learned uh, way more from them uh, than I'm sure they learned from us, uh, and I hope that you guys listening uh, will really enjoy it. So um, off we go. Delighted to be joined by uh, Tom and Amar um, for this latest episode of the Feelings Mutual. Um, welcome, guys. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Maybe we could just kick off by you guys introducing yourself a little bit um, and explaining a little bit about uh, what mutual aid means to you. Uh, Amar, would you go first? Sure. So um, I'm Amar. I'm based in South London in Peckham. Um, I'm a bartender, a journalist, and a general rabble-rouser, and I've been involved in mutual aid um, since just before lockdown, so kind of the beginning of the pandemic. So um, mutual aid in general, to me, it means um, uh, reciprocal uh, and mutual forms of interaction and support. It's about um, community construction, building local links so that ordinary people can support one another outside of formal frameworks, but mutual aid in a COVID-19 context as something, um, as an alternative to state and charity sector frameworks, uh, and then functionally um, interacting with local authorities and charities and kind of grappling with those frameworks. Yeah, so two distinct things. So my name's Tom Waring. Uh, I work for MAC. So MAC is the CVS or infrastructure organization in Manchester. Uh, for those that don't know what that is, that's the organization that supports the voluntary sector, charities, community groups in that area. So um, my role changed uh, as it did for a lot of people as soon as lockdown happened. Um, so our organization um, looked what was out there and it turned out that mutual aid groups, groups that were calling themselves mutual aid or mutual response community support groups were you know, flourishing, setting up um, and we wanted to support them, understand them. So in Manchester, my work has been kind of no strings attached support really for these groups. So saying, does anyone need anything and, and how can we help? And mutual aid for me, it's extremely varied that term. Um, you know, post lockdown, mutual aid was often spoke about in terms of these 
groups that set up in local areas, you know, phone lines set up by local people to support each other, shopping pickups for each other, um, you know, amazing, valuable things that I know, you know, a lot of people are really appreciated. This term existed before COVID, you know, you have Transmutual Aid in Manchester, that group existed way before COVID, you have Black Americans organizing, you know, late 1700s onwards, you know, so these ideas of mutual aid exist way before COVID-19. The turn is so varied. And for me, it does surprise me that people are making big, broad conclusions about this movement because it's existed for a long time. I mean, we might get onto it today, but, you know, Tory MP Danny Kruger does this report uh, recently about sustaining civil society, as he put it. And he says there's 4,000 mutual aid groups. Well, how are you counting that? What, what, what are you referring to? Because it's such a broad and varied movement. I think it's surprising that people are quite sure this is what mutual aid is and this is what it isn't. Obviously, we have to be very wary of that. Um, you know, Some local authorities are really willing to listen and work differently, but I do feel like others in other organisations um, are kind of misunderstanding what this movement is and have already concluded what the best way for this movement to act and how it should be is nice one tom thanks you know we've done a couple of these podcasts before and a thing that we really wanted to dig into and we talked about before this was you know what happens when you know perhaps smaller informal groups you know whether they're called mutual aid groups or not but uh, you know engage with more formal institutions could be local authorities could be others um and that was the kind of area we wanted to start to explore like we did explore that a little on the last podcast and particularly in reference to new local government networks uh, report on on the mutual aid uh, networks um, but i'd love to kind of go and delve into that a little bit more um, i mean maf i don't know if you want to say anything about that kind of conundrum and, and question that we'd raised in in previous uh, podcasts before we kick off well the lovely thing about podcast actually is it, it does quickly become a conversation as soon as you start putting it out so um the thing i've loved most about this is people coming back to us and and challenging us sometimes quite stridently um, and also, um, you know, we've got some people who we you know, really respect getting in touch with us saying, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And the thing they keep coming back to is this people not wanting to create a polarity between informal being uh, precious and formal being bad. Um, so everything. In, and I think I am probably prone for getting a little bit um, on the high horse about systems um, often buggering things up um, and praising the informal um but actually you know we I, what i'm really interested in exploring with amar and tom today is kind of the good and bad on both sides and do we always have to formalize but then sometimes does that bear fruit and bring great things and so i'd kind of really love to hear more from you about that informal formal aspect i've got a perspective that kind of saw both sides a kind of more formal approach and a less formal approach um at the time that i was getting involved in mutual aid um there were two avenues that I kind of got interested in in it via. So one was through some friends who'd set up, you know, what's credited as the first COVID-19 mutual aid group in Lewisham, um, very much more along the lines of kind of anarchist thinking. Um, and then someone else on a local Facebook group in Nunhead who had basically had the same idea but wasn't using that kind of language. So I also immediately recognized because I've been active in left organizing spaces for a long time, there is going to be some territorialism, there's going to be some egos, you need a lot of people management to kind of smooth that process over so we can be, you know, functional and ready in time. Um, and so what, what ended up happening is I became very active on the um, SE15 mutual aid network um, within Southwark, but also with a hyper-local group called Nunhead Knox, and I kind of co-founded that and was on the steering group. 
Um, none had knocks, partly because of the demographic that was involved. It was, I think, most mutual aid groups um, from the data that I've seen tend to be dominated by white people, tend to be dominated by, you know, lower middle class, middle class people, um, and, and also women as well take, take a more active role, which is interesting. Um, and I think because of the way that Nunhead Knox was organizing from a local Facebook forum, which was, you know, largely used by families, you know, 2.5 kids, white picket fence, that kind of thing. Um, and a lot of people involved had been involved in the third sector, the charity sector, more formal community organizing roles. Um, what that meant was that we actually very quickly came up with a structure as to how we were going to work, very quickly came up with policies, safeguarding policies that we were going to need. Uh, very quickly, we had resources like a website, um, things like Airtable. And as it developed, this became a bit of a problem because you had increasing levels of technocracy, which made it then harder for more people to get involved in day to day decisions, which kind of tended towards a, a centralizing imperative. At the same time, it meant that we were up and running before most of the other local mutual aid groups. And we kind of, if you were to quantify the support that we were able to give, especially in the initial period, it was it probably and the outreach that we managed managed to to get it probably dwarfed the other groups for quite some margin. At the same time, the other groups I I would say because they were focused mainly on WhatsApp, didn't have websites, didn't have all of this other technology involved. They were a bit more permeable. It was a bit easier to drop in and drop out. You know, there wasn't a mailing system. Um, if you're on the WhatsApp group, you can kind of do it. Uh, those also raise their own issues around things like safeguarding and around GDPR. Um, so I've kind of seen both sides of it and both definitely have their pros and cons. What's really interesting to me is that functionally, as uh, lockdown restrictions kicked in, as the pandemic developed, um, what this actually meant in practice actually became very flat line. There wasn't a massive difference between the help that was on offer between the more informal groups and between a more formalized, um, I think, CIC, I should know this in the steering group. Uh, I think it's a CIC from the Headnox, uh, with a constitution and all of that. Um, but we were working together. When it comes to like formalized interactions, one of the advantages to that, for example, was that um, as a collective of SC15 mutual aid groups, including Nunhead-Knox, we were able to interact with the council as a collective. And we were able to say, well, we're actually not going to pass on cases to you because actually there's a likelihood that you're going to pass that information onto the Home Office, for example, if we've got people with precarious migration statuses. And that's, you know, that um, supported efforts within the council to institute a firewall between Southwark and the Home Office. Um, at the same time, we had councillors telling us, we don't really see why you're doing this. There doesn't really seem to be a need. Um, and there's definitely a recognition that these groups had the potential to rival local authority power in terms of mobilising the community. What we've actually seen across all of the groups is greater disengagement, massive levels of burnout. And whether it's a more formalised group or a more informal group, you've got the same core team of half a dozen people taking on huge amounts of work uh, to try and make this happen. Um, and it's become quite evident that while there's great potential in these groups, whether they're formal or informal, their sustainability is very much going to be tied to linking in with existing infrastructure, whether that's physical community centres or churches or things like that, or whether that means adopting cooperative models or kind of CIC models or 
more sustainable methods of working that aren't actually what you could call mutual aid anymore. But at the same time, efforts that we don't describe as mutual aid, but I would argue are mutual aid, have also come out of both groups. No, that was great. Thank you very much. I think that burnout issue is a big one and really good to point out that we have perhaps sometimes a romanticized view that mutual aid is streets and streets of people looking over the fence when actual fact sometimes it's four or five people putting on putting the hours in every night um and that's that's a really good challenge as well uh, to think about that that maybe not everyone's involved maybe it's just a, a core few who then burn out that's a that's a brilliant point tom i wondered whether you had anything to say off the back of that yeah i think um just agreeing um in terms of you know in some cases what maybe called mutual aid groups and under that term you might have some kind of utopian idea that everybody's involved and everyone's giving and equally um isn't always the case but what i will say is that there's no hard and fast conclusions that can be made um in manchester and greater manchester because there's such a variety of groups i think over time we're going to we're going to see um we're really going to see some change with these groups. I'm already seeing already people thinking, do we need to formalize now? Do we need to structure? I can think of one group that are now like, we need to become a good neighbors group. That's our only option because of the workload and because that formal structure looks like the answer to some people. However, others are extremely determined never to constitute, always to keep their idea of what a mutual aid group is, which is we're not going to engage with any structures, we're not going to engage with the local authority because they haven't engaged or helped us. So again, it's a, a varied, varied picture where I am and I couldn't make any big conclusions. So I, I, to a certain extent, Tom, completely understand, as you say, drawing kind of key conclusions is quite hard. Um, I mean, if we think about one thing that we've talked about before um, is that, you know, both Math and I sort of believe that that the whole of the society should operate as far as possible on some sort of basis of mutuality. You know, I help you, you help me. Um, whether you call those kind of cooperative values, mutuality, um, uh, you know, you, people have different phrases for it. But we feel very much that, that that's part of, um, uh, you know, how society should be built and indeed how we should behave. And one of the things that kind of I'm always struck by when we talk about these sorts of conundrums is this drive to sustain, um, I wonder sometimes whether that drive to sustain is a drive to meet a perceived need of a specific thing. So to deliver in a way that perhaps I might describe as more of a sort of um, charity, we need to meet your needs kind of a way, rather than a drive to say, well, what we really need to sustain is that kind of spirit of connection and mutuality. You know, so I, I sort of wonder about that. And when I've been thinking about this kind of informal, formal thing, um, one of the things that sort of occurred to me when you get to ideas around uh, creating, you know, organizations and, and and systems and processes versus, you know, very, very much informal um, is, is it to do with like intention um, and power? You know, uh, there are organizations and groups that are more formalized, I suppose, as in they are a registered organization, but perhaps if their intention and their purpose is to create the kind of space and build the ambition and create the opportunity for more and more of these informal connections and this spirit of mutuality to happen, then we're talking. But if we're, their, their intention is to build an organization in order to meet a need um, in a sort of charity way, then perhaps this isn't neutrality or isn't mutual aid as I understand it. 
Yeah, um, that definitely resonates with me. And I was actually just thinking that, you know, that, that drive to be sustainable and to continue, right, the, the drive to, to perpetuate these groups isn't necessarily, you know, always centering the people to whom aid is delivered. And that is the framing often. And and I think there's, you know, to an extent, I think the charity framework or the the hybridity between kind of mutuality and charity, it's it's inevitable because especially in groups in, in urban centres, um, what you have is huge disparities between wealth, between time, privilege. Um, it's all well and good to say that, you know, this mutual aid group is going to be for mutual support. But at the end of the day, like, if you're supporting a family in a precarious job on, like, poverty wages and you're food insecure, you've got fuel poverty, um, if, you know, and you've got housing precarity, you're all going to be able to give back in quite the same way. I don't think that's a problem if what we're doing is trying to construct communities, because there's always going to be that disparity. Um, but I think specifically, because we can't meet, and we have to mediate this by and large through tech, even if it's just WhatsApp, what that means is there's always going to be a power dynamic between those who are helping and those who are in need. And you can argue that this fluctuates over time, and that it, you know it's kind of reciprocal in the long run, and I think that's true to an extent. But I mean, what what we've seen, for example, like when Nunhead Knox, we've been doing, we've been delivering food parcels, and we we delivered like something like a thousand hot meals over the, over the summer holidays to families with kids who like were struggling without school meals, um, and we're now at a stage where we're having to say, well, based on the labour that we're having to do, and you know, by and large, it, it it's not people who are well off, but it's also not people who are necessarily on the breadline who are shouldering the brunt of the work to get donations, make up food parcels, get drivers, get them delivered. And we're having to, at this point, take the decision to to take on more of a signposting role because there are charities that are doing what it is that we've ended up doing. Um, now, you can kind of, you know, there's other routes that we're going to go down. So we're going to try to facilitate food co-ops to kind of directly empower hyper-local communities. Um, but I, I think the point about that that need to kind of have this thing that we've all made together be sustained and be named. Um, I, th I think that's part and parcel of the framework that most people do good things under. Um, and I, I don't think it's a problem, to be honest, if a lot of these groups dissipate, because the interpersonal bonds that you don't see based on statistics and quantifiable aid, those, those will continue anyway, you know. And to an extent, the fact that these mutual aid groups, the informal ones in particular, are getting less engagement, is a testament to the strong community bonds that have superseded the need for those structures. I totally agree with uh, uh, the fact that you don't want to um, forget that this is also an idea as well as structures. It's it's an idea that exists in the air and that people have suddenly woken up to the idea that they can work with people on their street. And the reason I'm late, I was late for this podcast was because my neighbour next door um, couldn't get a lift to the hospital and in discussion with him, there were at least six or seven people that we could arrange for to take him to the hospital on our street. And um, I'm not entirely sure he knew them before lockdown. And so, you know, these things have come from it and it doesn't have to be formalized. It's just been awoken. And so I, it can exist purely as that, I think. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I see a lot being said about, you know, this mutual aid it's not how it should be, or, you know, these groups aren't mutual aid groups. I said that before. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, under whose definitions, you know, so 
as I was saying before, you have a group, a WhatsApp group with with 10 people on and those people now know each other and they decide to disband the WhatsApp group. Does that matter? Does that mean that mutual aid's failed? Um, you know, if a group decides to to formalize and become, as you were saying, Amana, went to your talk on this as well, if it decides that it work could be better organized through a food cooperative, um, I will have seen people online talking about things like that as a failure and almost like a betrayal of mutual aid. And I feel like our, you know, relative positions, you know, how we've come to learn about mutual aid, how we've got interested in the topic and how we've been engaged or involved with it, you know, does by definition kind of tell us what we think mutual aid is and should or shouldn't be. I mean, one of the things that's just sort of sitting there occurring to me now is, you know, this desperate desire to capture the spirit of mutual aid and support um, in so many levels, you know, but, but for, uh, throughout government and various other kind of conversations we've had across civil society in particular um, seems to be sort of like grasping at smoke in a way. And, you know, one of the things that um, uh, I quite often think is that what we're really wanting to sustain is the ability and the, the, the opportunity to connect with each other. And so it's things that help create that, which perhaps, you know, is a way to, uh, to look at this, you know, I, I, my sort of, closest experience to this in terms of this this um uh you know organizations and formal informal thing is the bevy community pub um in brighton that i'm i'm uh, on the committee of and um that's a a cooperative and an organized uh, formal structure but the intention there entirely is to create more and more opportunities and spaces for people across the community to do what they want to do and to connect with each other, which helps, I think, to sustain some of the spirit of mutuality, but not in a kind of measured, it must be all encapsulated within this organization. Um, and I do think that what what we're sort of seeing, or maybe perhaps my experience of what we're seeing, is that occasionally there is this real divisiveness between informal is great and formal is terrible. Um, and, and this is kind of not particularly helpful um we're not talking about that uh what we're talking about is that mutuality is this concept is this thing that is fueled by connection and it's fueled by opportunities to connect and that can be supported in the right ways and with intention and with understanding of power and all of those things through some formalized groups and through informal connections and groups as well um but 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 that you know, it, it comes down to intention, control and, and power, ultimately. Um, and, you know, there are lots of places like the bevy that help facilitate that. There are also lots of things that call themselves co-ops, which I would argue don't do that. Um, and there are bigger institutions that are doing that perhaps better than others um, and some that aren't. Uh, I don't know if you guys have got some examples of both the good and the bad in that respect. We saw in Greater Manchester um, at the start of lockdown, uh, a borough of Greater Manchester its infrastructure organisation, or otherwise known as the CBS, so that organisation which supports the voluntary sector community groups, uh, offered support to, to mutual aid groups and similar groups in their area. Um, but this wasn't dependent on the group's organisational structures or anything like that. It was just an open offer of support and there was no kind of barriers to accessing that support. So I see that as really positive. And also uh, in developing the community food response in that area, i.e. keeping people fed, um, they asked, which is an important word here, they asked mutual aid groups if they wanted to be part of this response. So, you know, do you want to come on board and maybe be part of, you know, designing the, the community food response and being part of that effort? Um, this, I will say, was all in partnership with the local authority who basically stood out of the way. So they attended, you know, meetings when this was being organised. They offered support um, 
where they could, but they also got out of the way where they could. So again, this it seems like there's trust there. There was a soft touch approach there. You know, support wasn't dependent on the group's status and they were asked if they wanted to be involved. And why I say asked is because I've seen in other areas, and I'll get onto this in a sec, where, you know, organizations and local authorities will signpost into mutual aid groups without at any point asking do you want this do you have capacity or anything like that so that's a massive massive difference between being asked and being not being asked obviously the questions have to come from will this last long term but you know just a quote from someone who was involved with the groups and you know who i know said our council and cbs they totally embraced our mutual aid group and we've worked in partnership what a shame it isn't the same elsewhere so that's what I'd say is a good example. Again, that's going off my kind of prejudices and, and my desires and my ideas around mutual aid. But there were some really positive responses from people who were involved with the groups there when they felt like they weren't being patronised, they were being included and they were also trusted. Um, bad examples. Now, in Greater Manchester, I'm, I'm not going to name boroughs, but um, an infrastructure organisation um, said to groups, uh, if you want some support, you're going to have to organise, you're going to have to get safeguarding policies because you're unsafe. And uh, then posted on a website saying, the mutual aid groups in this area are not affiliated with us, we don't work with them, and also watch out for scammers. Um, the local authority in the same area says to be part of the response, you know, the community response to the pandemic, um, you must organize. This is what you must do to be part of that. That's just one example. Another one in another area, uh, council um, tells a mutual aid group in an area, okay, you're doing shopping for each other, are you? Um, well, our staff should probably do that for you. Um, the local authority goes on to Facebook groups in that area, says, okay, if you want support and you want to volunteer, come to us. So not asking the group whether they want this, just posting on the pages. And when these groups asked the uh, the local authority, can we maybe be part of the community response? I mean, it seems faintly ridiculous to me that they have to ask that. Uh, they were said, no, you know, you need to organise. And I see this replicated across the country, but both of these areas, local plans, basically say you know we want people to do more for themselves trust each other more support each other in communities you see so much of this talk when it came down to the crunch in a pandemic what happened lots and lots of command and control not asking groups signposted into them without even asking if they wanted to be part of any of this those examples you've cited essentially probably cover any example that i would have to offer they're instantly recognizable they've been replicated across the country in you know very similar and identifiable ways um, but one thing I did want to circle back on, because I know that there's been um, a fair amount of response to the previous podcasts around the dangers of essentializing mutual aid and kind of fetishizing informal structures. But I just want to acknowledge that that also fulfills a very important function, that kind of discourse. And that kind of brings us on to, to the Kruger report, because what happens when we're entirely comfortable with community initiatives being co-opted or being formalized or taking on formal roles um, is we see very much that same trajectory from local authority and from national government that you can trace back to Blair. So um, reading the Kruger report, it talks a lot about um, about how there's a new, you know, a new social contract that we can we can enter into based on um, mutual aid groups, based on how the communities have come together, uh, and the role that that fulfilled under 
Blair, for example, uh, and I've spoken about this a few times, um, was to enable ethical outsourcing to the third sector, the voluntary sector, the social enterprise and co-op industry. What we saw under Cameron and the uh, coalition was big society thinking, again, where you strip back the welfare state and services that the state should be providing and you use you try and present that as a public good by presenting it as self-reliant communities helping each other out and we're seeing it again now and i think it's really it is a very dangerous rhetoric because as mu as much as we're currently working with the state and currently working with the third sector that's based on immediate material need at the same time we should be in no doubt that the, the existence of these groups, the existence of that solidarity is functionally going to be used to justify policies of austerity, policies of privatization, privatization and of outsourcing. So as much as it's important to recognize that, that there's not, an, you know, um, that dichotomy between mutual aid versus um, charity sector aid it is permeable. It's not that distinct. At the same time, it is an important distinction to try and reinforce and keep returning to because we have to think about the political implications of what we're doing on the one hand informal mutual aid groups you know that i'm a part of down here um they've resulted in people you know supporting local trade union initi initiatives that i've been involved in and organizing we're setting up an anti-raids network to revive the one that was in Deptford about 10 years ago in south london um, there's been a, a reading group after black lives matter to try and educate local people on um whiteness on, on how it manifests and on how to combat systemic and institutional racism and yes again at the same time you've got the local labor party which i'm a member of trying to take credit for some of this you've got cuts on the horizon it is still very dangerous and it's still very fraught this is a quote from somebody from a mutual labor in greater manchester uh, our local council have been surprised at what can be done it has opened the door for a lot of work but we in mutual aid groups need to come together, work together to ensure we're not used to replace paid services. And um, there's a big acknowledgement of that in, in Greater Manchester. Um, and again, just following on from what you said about the Kruger report, um, just to give my thoughts on that, I think it's it's absolutely terrifying what's in there because, as you said, it's basically saying, Christ, how fantastic is this movement? Oh, we absolutely love it. You know, we're going to support this um, and basically what we're going to do, as outlined in the report, and I do see this elsewhere, it's not just central government, is we're basically going to place value on what we think mutual aid should be. So, for example, the Charity Commission is going to put probation status for groups that are doing things well, that's his words, um, e.g., you know, collecting data, being more professional, in his words, and there'll be advantages for that. So, you know, what's their measure of doing things well? What if that group is anti-government policy or, you know, we'll talk central, we'll talk local. They're basically being incentivized in this report uh, to do things how the government wants them to. And I don't think that's limited to central government. You see it in local areas as well, where it's basically like, oh, this is a fantastic movement. We love mutual aid. It's great. You know, um, please come on board. You know, we could maybe think about funding. But, you know, what's going to come with that? That's It's going to come. If those groups are against the very organizations that are saying they're going to support them, then how's that relationship going to work? And it's going to be a really interesting time going ahead. Because as I said at the start, I feel like the public sector and local authorities are getting really interested in mutual aid uh, in terms of building back better and, you know, what comes next. Um, so, yes, it's going to be very interesting. Tom, you mentioned, well, you both mentioned the Kruger Report. And um, in, in the interest of balance, <laughs> which is something Bob and I are learning to say more in this podcast. Um, <laughs> um, in the interest of balance, I mean, I think in the, in the report, you know, Kruger does, uh, he calls out at one point how big society was essentially 
the big society policy of Cameron's government was very much tied to austerity um, and, and, and you know, p- polluted by the fact that people thought it was a, a cop-out um, and a way to, to not have to spend public money on, on, on essential services, etc. And so he does, he sort of outs that. He does out a lot of very bad commissioning that's happened from transforming rehabilitation to lots of stuff. He does talk about a need for citizen assemblies and, and increased democracy and in, inclusion in communities in terms of planning. And, uh, you know, I've met Danny Coogan. He's a, he's a smart guy and a reasonable fellow. And I was thinking, this is very promising. And then I got to the recommendations and yeah, I, f- I felt a little bit like you, Tom. And I, but I just wondered if we couldn't acknowledge that there's, there's a lot of good stuff in there too, right? My first reading of it was was very excited, and then I came to some some similar conclusions about some of the the dangers. Um, but I don't think this is uh, about that particular report, because I think I also see these dangers where any formal structures start to happen in local areas, um, not just local authorities, but you know, cooperatives even and and, and smaller groups that come together, um, because there is this kind of drive, or we're somehow trained in some way to you know, centralise and put arms around something. This sort of drive both at local level sometimes, um, then at, a, a, you know, local authority level, then at central state level to sort of centralise, amalgamate, conglomerate. I agree with you to an extent. Um, and I think that, but what I would also say is that that centralising drive, um, that it is to an extent, like, it's, it's not a good or a bad drive, I, I wouldn't argue. And I think part of it is motivated by the fact that fundamentally if you're going about things informally there's actually a postcode lottery right for some of the most vulnerable people in society if there's not clear signposting and clear structures that they can engage in it's actually really quite hard to get the help that you need even at a local authority level let alone on a kind of informal mutual aid based level but just to circle back very quickly to to the kruger report it's classical Toryism rather than the far right Toryism, and that but to me that just kind of speaks really to the failure of any kind of like partisan political approach to kind of try and contest neoliberal frameworks. So uh, the fact that you could you could look at a report like this and say, oh, this could also probably quite easily come from the Labour Party. It was exactly what I thought. And I take that as a damning indictment of the Labour Party, because this isn't, it's not evil. This isn't part of some great big Tory ploy to kind of try and offset everything and like appropriate things. This seems like someone who's looked at the data and looked at the efforts and they're thinking, how can we empower communities? And I think it's a, a colossal failure of, of imagination on the left, on the one hand to to try and castigate that as something inherently evil, but on the other hand, to think that these kind of piecemeal gestures towards empowering communities are anything like the massive systemic change that we need. So I'm thinking about carceral cosmopolitanism, the hostile environment, and the huge tide of transphobia and uh, homophobia as well, the massive amounts of racism that have been empowered in recent times, um, the increasing surveillance, all of these things are very much going to continue to happen at the same time as middle-class communities get funding so they can empower one another. And that's my sticking point with it, is that when we look at these policies in a national context, fair enough, they're actually not all that bad. But if if you look at neoliberalism as something that is actively violent and pervasive, this is very much part of that structure. Do you think so? Yeah, I'd, I'd argue so. And I, I, think, I think this is... Again, this is this is you know I have my very personal biases about this, um, but I'm I'm always very very wary of the language of empowering communities when 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 functionally 
the communities that are being empowered tend to already have vestiges of privilege that enable them to do so. Because oh, yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you on that point. And, and I very much like the way the conversation was going there, where we were saying that mutuality can exist across many forms, formal and informal, and is almost more about behavior and trust and power. And I, I like that very much. Similarly, I'd quite like to perhaps posit the idea that it could exist across political spectrums. I totally hear what you're saying, Amar, looking at the track record and the hostile environment, as you mentioned, is, um, you know, I haven't got a, a, a burgeoning optimism about um, Danny Kruger's party embracing all his ideas. However, um, kind of at face value, um, one has to think about some of where this is coming from and, and what you were saying about uh, old and new conservatism, because actually, you know, um, I've seen a lot of the worst top-down command and control at a local authority level over the last 20 years, working with people with very tough lives, coming from Labour councils who want to control everything, um, all of the services, um, often from very good intentions, actually, um, but terribly controlling. And that I can get on board with the elements in the Conservative Party to do with getting out of the way and letting the individual and individuals in the community uh, be a little bit more master of their own destiny. So I kind of think this is coming from an interesting place within the Conservative Party. Yeah, just very quickly to clarify, I absolutely do think that there are good intentions behind this report. My only concern is that like this level of mutual aid and interdependence um, can itself like be, you know, be a very good thing. Um, but the the policies it's used in conjunction with, it can actually, actually be used to normalise situations in which you've got this kind of idyllic um, idea of like, British values, British communities, and how that then can kind of obscure the realities for those, you know, for the homeless, for those with no recourse to public funds. So I don't think it comes from a bad place at all. I'm just um, thinking politically, I'm just concerned that that any challenge to the existing neoliberal framework is, is absent the minute that we have to interact with local authorities. And I, that's unavoidable. I'm just making the point. Following on from what Amar said, you know, mutuality and mutual aid and all this you know, community response will only be accepted so far. Um, and I'm not talking about just the Conservative Party here, but, you know, as soon as, and you see it in the report when it's talking about its recommendations, you know, when it's saying it's incentivised groups that are going to do things well, um, and there's going to be advantages for those groups that do things well um, when they're more professional and when they're collecting data. So it's basically saying we're going to accept mutual aid as long as it's not challenging the normal order of things and the way things actually exist. And, you know, when we're saying how can um, how can this be done well from public sector or, or government, it's, you know, you can support mutuality and mutual aid in, in a good way without command and control. And, um, you know, how you support is, is you get out of the way and you offer support that isn't dependent on whether groups are, you know, doing certain things, you know, whether they're following safeguarding policies, DBS, or, you know, they're doing DBS checks with their volunteers. It's, it's it just seems that, Yes, I'm agreeing with you, Amar, basically, is that this report may understand the context, it may broadly support mutual aid, but as soon as, and you can see it in that report, as soon as it starts to challenge the order of things, then you can guarantee that it's not going to be supported anymore. And it's basically incentivizing a certain type of, of community. There are lots of things that are coming out that give me full of hope as well, though, you know, that only today or was it yesterday? It was a, a series of, of conversations that happened with local authorities and Nesta put something out there about um, you know, how, how do you explore a kind of 
engagement between local authorities and communities that uh, is really is enabling and in in principle sits with sort of asset based community development and there's loads of great stuff in that um from a first glance that points towards some of the great examples that you talked about tom and that you've talked about mar as well uh, and i can see you know this kind of a debate is exactly the kind of conversation i feel like we need to have i'm slightly wary personally of um uh engaging in that along party political lines um which i think we've all sort of talked about to a certain degree here because uh, i think that it's more the whole approach that we need to kind of talk about and question and debate because it is nuanced and it isn't easy um we need to have a front and central thing which challenges the kind of the way things have always been done in my view well it's all about trust uh, at the end of the day and there's not an entirely large amount of trust in any political party right now so um i don't think we can go political we we, we have to think about it as behavior and anyone who steps forward and exhibits the best behavior and trust will get my vote yeah i mean yeah i can i, I can totally get on board with that and i think to be honest like some of the most some of the most powerful things that have come out of mutual aid for me um, are things that are, you know, deviating from the mutual aid structures in general and becoming like informal one-off initiatives, like local campaigns to to save a community park that's being redeveloped and for luxury high-rise flats, or local campaigns to kind of uh, try and get like safe cladding put on estates on the Old Kent Road, uh, local campaigns um, to support trade unionism, support workers' rights, um, to institute a long-term firewall between the council and the Home Office, um, to support asylum seekers, refugees, the anti-raids network, all of these informal networks are not going to be functioning in the general mutual aid groups that come from informal collections of people, many of them organisers and activists, but many of them new to it and newly active in their communities who have come out and informally uh, are now connected and are going to do that work. That's some of the most important work that I can see going forward because long term, these specific issues require a lot of dedicated activism and not everyone can always give that. What you're describing, Amar, is people with lots of different interests coming from different places, some from within structures, some from without, collectively coming together on issues. And when you want to create um, a community, a landscape that allows for all these people and all these voices, voices to come in you have to allow for misfits you have to allow for voices that don't quite fit and follow the rules i was speaking to shiri shalmi from um corporation town um and she made the point that you know while it's great there's been an upsurge of what we call mutual aid now you know working class babe queer trans communities migrant communities have always had what you describe as mutual aid just never in that language they've always shared childcare they've always you know done the shopping for one another you, you kind of have to when you're at these axes of oppression under capitalism i'd argue so i think whether or not mutual aid in the way that we're currently discussing it is a relevant topic one year from now you know again as has already been said the community bonds and the level of engagement that it's given rise to those are really really powerful and those aren't going to go away no matter how co-opted various groups get by the state by funding by the charity sector Amen to that. Round of applause. Absolutely. Absolutely. Your closing ideas or thoughts on reflection? I'd probably just say that I think it's really important, really great that um, we're having these conversations about local and hyperlocal initiatives, but we're doing it at a national level and, you know, in other cases, international levels. Um, it's really important and it's really, really encouraging that these conversations are being had. And I think party politics and uh, the co-op movement and the trade union movement could learn a lot by how introspective and willing to take critique and accountability 
people that have been involved in mutual aid have exhibited. So just thank you so so much for doing this. I think it's really important. Great stuff, Amar. That's brilliant. Tom? Yeah, sure. I think for me, to sum up from today, I think the first thing is accept the mess. I think there's an absolutely massive diversity of things going on under the banner of mutual aid. Um, and as soon as we start saying this is good mutual aid, this is bad mutual aid, this is how it should and shouldn't be done, we're going to kill it. We're going to stamp on it. We're going to dilute what was so great about these groups that set up to start with that uh, were extremely valuable for a lot of people. Um, and as we said, what I think is most important is, you know, if groups don't operate anymore, if they dissolve, it doesn't matter. We don't have to say that it's failed because I do believe truly that, you know, the feelings of mutuality, connections between people will last well beyond, you know, what happened post lockdown when lots and lots of groups set up. You know, it doesn't mean that mutuality and mutual aid has died and failed. It, it really doesn't. Let's look at what, you know, the legacy of this is going to be and let's try and build on that in a way, again, that doesn't bring in our own prejudices, our own desires for what mutual aid should and shouldn't be. The only thing I'd add um, uh, would be that, you know, this isn't about informal versus formal or in, or something like that. But but what it is about is mutuality and the concept of it and the way we're framing it has been around forever. and in all sorts of places. It isn't the same as mutual aid groups, the supposedly 4,000 that you mentioned, Tom. Um, it, it is about the, the the spirit of that and what that means and that connection. Um, and if that's what we're talking about here, then that's a really good and great healthy debate to be talking about. Um, and that does challenge a great deal of the current framing or the way in which we look at society and how we create social change. Um, and we need to do as much of that as we possibly can across all parties, across all spectrums, hyper-local, international, national. And thank you. I, 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 I am spectacularly grateful and excited to have, um, you know, voices like yours uh, articulating things uh, that are in my head that, <laughs> but, haven't, <laughs> but haven't yet been said uh, from your own experiences. And, and so many times when you've been speaking, Amar, when you're speaking, Tom, I've been nodding and thinking, of course, yes, didn't think of that. Or... That's, you know, and I've been sort of shaking my hands. I wish we had a visual podcast here. I've been getting very, very, very excited about what you're saying. I'm so grateful to you sharing your expertise and your, your, your knowledge and how exciting that we've got people with high levels of personal responsibility and community responsibility, checking themselves, challenging themselves and talking about this. I mean, this is how we're going to make progress. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Great stuff, guys. Thank you so much for, for being on. Well, thanks again to Amir and Tom. That was brilliant. I loved that. Um, We hope that it uh, sparks some ideas in you. Maybe you're shouting at your headphones or whatever you're listening to this on uh, and you want to get involved. uh, Please uh, email us at hello at practicalgov.co.uk or tweet us and uh, get involved. 